before I read the text, let me give for you just kind of the big idea. Although I will say this, I think as we read the text, um, it's going to be one of those you don't really need me for, right? Like, I'm going to give you the big idea, but you're going to see it. It's here so much throughout the text. And here it is, though, um, just so we're together on it. But God wants every, every disciple, every believer, every follower, God wants every disciple to be absolutely assured of his love for them so that they can love others. That's where we're going after, okay? So if you have your Bibles, John 15 Um, We're going to start in verse number 12. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your love, to be assured of your love, and to love one another, and to love one another well, not with just word, but in deed and in action. And help us to understand what this means for us. Many of us here that we desire to obey you in all things. We desire to obey this command, but we may not know what it means and what it looks like So help us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I think I said this last week, but good grief. This John, the 15th chapter is so rich that we could spend months and months and months just kind of parsing it out and looking at it and wringing all of the goodness out of it. But we don't, I mean, we actually have that time, but we're not going to take that time. Um, We're going to, you know, moving pretty quickly actually through it chunk by chunk. And even today, like I can't get to everything that Jesus is saying in this text. And so we're going to kind of hit the high parts and we're going to especially focus in on those two things. I mean, notice how the the text that we're looking at, notice how it's structured. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, a love sandwich, if you will. There's the command in verse number 12 to love one another. And it's sandwiched in between Jesus's love for us. And then the final, the bottom piece of the sandwich is verse number 17, where once again, Jesus tells us, he commands us to love one another. The theme of John 15 we've been talking about primarily is the theme of love. And so this fits in within this context of that. But what we've noticed, and we could have read it all, is Jesus has been saying to his disciples over and over again, abide. That's the word, abide in me. As I abide abide in the Father, so you are to abide in me. That's the picture. Again, he's abide, 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 abide in my commandments, abide in my word, abide in my love. All pictures of us abiding in Jesus. And if we, as we abide in Jesus, we as his disciples, we will bear fruit. So those are the two things, abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit. And last week we talked about what it means to abide in Jesus, or actually last couple of weeks, we talked what it means to abide in Jesus. It means to stay vitally connected to Jesus, stay, remain connected to Jesus. 
Don't run anywhere. Don't go anything. We said that the picture has just happened. It's Judas. Judas Iscariot's gotten up and left the room. And now Jesus is telling the other 11 to stay, stay here, stay with me, abide with me. Don't give up. Don't let go. Stay attached to me. Let my life and let my sustenance, let it flow through you. And as it flows through you, you will bear fruit. We talked about, but we'll talk about again, what does it mean then to bear fruit? What does that look like? Well, bearing fruit is this. It means that we should, that we will live like Jesus and we will love like Jesus. Two things, we're gonna live like Jesus because we are vitally attached to Jesus. He's the branch. He's providing life through us. He's putting his sap into us. His spirit is in us. We're abiding in him. So we're gonna live like Jesus. We're gonna love like Jesus. What do we mean by live like Jesus? We've just covered that a ton. We'll cover the latter part today, but living like Jesus is Jesus's character is being formed in us. What does it mean to live like Jesus? What it means to act like Jesus acted, to love like Jesus loved, to have peace like Jesus has peace. We said it's the fruit of the spirit. Abide in the, you're gonna, you're gonna bear fruit. What fruit? Galatians 5, 22 through 24 gives us the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, go all the way down through the list, right? Paul's not just pulling those things out of midair, even under the inspiration of the Spirit, but what he's describing is two things. He's describing the fruit of the Spirit, but he's also describing the character of Jesus. Jesus is, lo is perfectly loving. Jesus is perfectly filled with joy. Jesus is perfectly peaceful. Jesus is perfectly kind. And so what he's describing is his character. We're gonna live like Jesus and also we're going to love like Jesus. That Jesus's love comes to us so that it may go through us. Jesus's love is shown to us that it might transform us and then pass through us to others. That's what he's talking about. Again, his sustenance, his, as we abide in his love, Jesus's love flows through us so that we can do what? So that we can love others. That's what the text is about. All right. Let's get into the text. Verse number 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. It's very interesting here. If you think about the structure of what Jesus is saying, Jesus is commanding love. I mean, generally we think about commandments and laws divorced from emotions. Love is, it's a feeling, right? We would say love's a verb and that's true. We'll get into that, but it's also a feeling that we feel, but it's hard to command feelings, right? I want you to be genuinely interested in everything I'm saying right now and listen to me. Like it don't work by just demanding it or commanding it, right? Even though I may desire it and I may make a command. In fact, the security team is gonna drag you out if you don't listen to me. It doesn't work like that. I live on the west side of town. I live over off of Collins Lane and there are 27 stop signs on Collins Lane. <laughs> Amen? And I never want to stop at any of the stop signs, right? But I've never, I, I have gotten pulled over for not stopping at the stop sign, but because I didn't stop at the stop sign. Not because, hey, Andy, right? The police officer pull you over and come knock on the window. Hey, Andy, I saw you. And even though you stopped, I could tell you didn't want to stop. You bet you I didn't want to stop. Well, you got to want to stop, not just stop, right? Commands, laws are usually divorced from or different than in a separate category than than feelings, right? You can't steal, right? That's the law, do not steal. You can't steal something to go, but I really wanted those shoes, right? It doesn't work like that. Look, it doesn't flow over. In the same way, like you can't command love, can you? Like I didn't get Luann to love me by locking her in a room and showing up every day and going, you will love me. 
you know, leave, come back. Do you love me yet? No, you know, but I would like some bread. Like, it doesn't work like that. That's called abuse. That's a hostage situation. I mean, sometimes it happens. It's called Stockholm syndrome, but it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. That's not how love works. But yet look at what Jesus does. Jesus commands his disciples to an emotion, to feel something, to love one another. Now, how can he do that? Well, he can do that for a number of reasons, but let me pull, point out two. Two reasons why Jesus can cross over these separate categories and Jesus can command feelings out of his disciples. Number one, he does this. He can do this because he can command what he's going to accomplish. Jesus can command this because Jesus will accomplish this. Jesus is so assured of his transforming love He's so assured of the power of the Spirit working in his disciples that he can command them to love. So he does that. He commands them to love because he knows that he's going to accomplish that in them. If you abide in me, you will love others. You will have a love for one another. In fact, John, like John gives like, we could actually preach John 15 as a sermon by just reading 1 John. Like 1 John, the book of 1 John in the Bible is basically a sermon. It's a commentary on John 15. Like he gives tons of insight as to what Jesus is getting at in 1 John, in 1 John, uh, the book of 1 John. And that's what G in John will say in 1 John, it's proof. Our salvation, what proves our salvation is that we obey Jesus and what proves our salvation is that we love others. Those two things. It's not 27 things. It's two things that we love, love Jesus and obey Jesus and that we love others. So he knows that he's going to accomplish this. He commands them to love because he's going to accomplish it by his work, by saving them, by filling them with the spirit. Number two, it's a command because irrespective of how we feel about it, we are to do it. That's why he commands it. He's going to accomplish it, yes, but also he commands it so that you can say, hey, I don't really want to love others. Are you a believer? Then obey me and love others. And that's, that's important because sometimes we can kind of, we can, um, Sometimes we can feel our way, right? I'm sorry, we can act our way into correct feelings. That's something that Pastor Herschel York said, and it's a very good line. We can, in fact, we can act our way into correct feelings. Rarely will we ever feel our way into right actions. Our hearts will lead us astray so many times, but we can act our way into correct feelings and we're to obey him irrespective of how we feel about it. That we are transformed as we become more aware of Jesus's love for us. That's what's happening in this text. That's what G John says, even in 1 John 4, 19. We love, why do we love? How do we love? Because he first loved us. That's John 4, 19, or 1 John 4, 19. It's a cause and effect. His love causes us to love others. God's love for us is the ignition. Jesus's love poured out for us is the ignition of our love for others. And in fact, let's look at that. That's what's happening in verses 13 through 16 is a description of the way that Jesus loves his disciples. Number one, and Jesus's disciples. We'll even get in this later, but Jesus has a particular love for his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, God loves everyone, but he has a particular love a fatherly love, a brotherly love, as we'll see in this text, a sacrificial love for whom? For his children, for his followers, for his disciples. Verse number 13, greater love 
has no man than, than he lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater expression of love, no greater gift that we can give than that of our own lives. We give and we give and we give. What else do you want from me? Your life. Okay, I'll give that to you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The greatest expression of love is self-sacrifice. The ultimate gift, the ultimate price being paid because of love is one's life. And Jesus will go to the cross and he will lay down his life for his friends, for his disciples, for those of us even in this room who believe in him. Notice at what, as Derek read earlier, in Romans, the fifth chapter, we'll look at that first text of scripture again, because notice what Paul says in there. No doubt Paul is pulling from this and teaching this in this text, but look how Paul positions it. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's different. Jesus said one would die for their friends, but here Paul's saying like, hey, look, the truth is we weren't his friends when he died for us. We were the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of a son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus dies for us. He gives up his life for us. Value is conferred to us by this. We would say like, hey, that person right there, they would take a bullet for me. There may be a few people that would say, hey, I would take a bullet for Andy. Like if you do, I feel sorry for you, but nevertheless. And what we would say, when we say that, that person would take a bullet. What are we talking about? We're talking about the value, the strength of the relationship. What we're saying there is, man, this person really loves me and they would sacrifice themselves for me. And the truth is, is Jesus took a cross for us. And that, that confers value on us. That means that we're worth something. We're worth the blood of Jesus to, to purchase us, to buy us. Talk about that in a second. In fact, let's just move on down. First is his sacrificial love. Jesus' love comes to us as a sacrificial love. Jesus lays down his life for us. Number two, it's a brotherly love. Verse number 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This, this phrase that Jesus is using, these servants that I now call friends is actually a, a very interesting analogy. Um, um, it's the picture of a, of a trusted, faithful bond servant and their master. Here's the picture, any, any person of power, any leader, any master, any emperor, any king, any lord, any monarch, they would have servants. It's just the social structure of the day. They would have slaves. There were some within the servants who would be invited in to help the master, the lord, the monarch, whoever it is, the person of power, they'd be invited in to help them especially, to help them with, with certain things, personal things even. Those of you in the room that have watched Downton Abbey, the men in the room that have watched Downton Abbey, you are faithful and good husbands. You will hear one day, well done, good and faithful servants, enter into your reward. If, if now you have to watch it because I mentioned it, 
don't at me, right? Don't hate me, right? I'm sorry. But in the PBS special, Downton Abbey, it's a story of these uh, British aristocrats, if you will. And there's this family, the, the Granthams, and there's Lord Grantham is the main dude. He's the main man. And Lord Grantham has his butler. His name is uh, Bates, Mr. Bates. I got in my notes, but I didn't need that. It's good. Mr. B and Bates helps Lord Grantham with like everything. Like as you watch the show, you're like, can't this joker put his jacket on by himself? But he doesn't need to because Bates helps him and then brushes his jacket for him and helps him tie his tie and goes and gets his car for him. And, and in fact, he even sometimes gives advice. And so that's kind of the picture. In the Roman world, it would have been amped up even more that these monarchs, leaders, whatever, people of power, they would have these servants. And some of the servants would be trusted servants that would be brought into the inner circle they would be the ones to help them personally. They would take their sandals off at night and help them put their bed clothes on. They'd be the ones in the morning to bring them out of bed to help them prepare for the day. These type of relationship, they would know more than even their wives knew. It could be said that they were the most intimate people in the life of a person of power. They were the closest, the most personal, the, the most trusted people in their private world. They had to be trusted. They had to be trusted with their lives. They'd be trusted with his thoughts. They'd be trusted with his plans. They'd be trusted with his goals and his objectives. And this is the type of relationship that Jesus is describing here. No longer do I call you servants. He didn't say you're no longer servants. Notice that. But you're more than servants. You're not just servants. Now I'm calling you my friends. I'm inviting you in. You are my friends. In fact, let's think about the word servant for a moment. Because the word translated servant is the word doulos, and it means slave. Now in the English Bible, starting all the way back in the 1600s, um, because of the atrocities of the type of slavery that was done in the West, the word slave started getting translated out of the Bible. It's, it's like, a I think there's like 150 in the New Testament. I think there's something like 150 times the word doulos shows up, but it gets translated servant, bond servant. Rarely do you find it to be slave. Paul describes himself as a servant, a slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake here, when Jesus is saying this, no longer do I call you servants, you're still a slave to Christ. These aren't employees but these are slaves that are owned and they're owned by Jesus. It falls back to the sacrificial part that we were just talking about, that you and I, the same as these 11 men, we've been bought by Jesus. We've been purchased by Jesus. We've been purchased out of the, the slavery of sin. We've been purchased by Jesus off of the slave market, if you will, of sin. We've been purchased by Jesus, by Jesus's own blood. And now Jesus owns us. Jesus is our master. He's not changing that dynamic. Nowhere in the Bible has Jesus changed that dynamic. Jesus is still our master and he still owns us. He purchased us. We belong to him. Is there freedom in that? Yes. Yes, there is freedom in that. But I, I say all of this because Jesus is describing a type of relationship a type of relationship that you and I partake of, that we are servants, we are slaves that he calls friends. We've been invited into this relationship, but we must continue to obey. That's why verse 14 is so important. You are my friends if you do what I command you. See, there's no relief to this idea of now you belong to me. I command you and you do it. The truth is that for us who are believers, our freedoms are defined by Jesus. Our duties are defined by Jesus. 
Our convictions are defined by Jesus. Our words are defined by Jesus. Our actions are defined by Jesus. Our relationships are defined by Jesus. Everything in our lives is defined, governed by him. That you and I, when we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus, we yield everything up. We submit and we surrender everything to him. Whatever you command us to do, Lord, we will do it. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. Kurios. Jesus is master. He's Lord. He's over all. And we are his doulos, his servants, his slaves, carrying out your bidding. Everything in my life. Nothing belongs to me. Everything belongs to him. We are slaves who he chooses and invites in to call his friends. In fact, that's the word friends is the word phileo. It's a type of love that he's describing there. So you think about there's in the Bible, there's different ways that they describe love. And one of them is phileo, and it means brotherly love, friendship type of love. So the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's where they're getting it from, from this word phileo. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the type of relationship that we have. You are loved as friends. You are brothers. You're a, if you were a friend to the king, if you were a slave who had been invited in, included in, you were, you were the people most specially favored. You were most trusted, most included. And that is what Jesus is saying. My trust in you it manifests itself in revelation. Everything that I've heard from my father, I'm telling you, there's no secrets here, Jesus is saying. Everything about me, why I've come, my mission, the gospel, who you are, what you're gonna do. You're gonna see this, especially next week when he tells them the world's gonna hate you. I'm not pulling any punches. I'm not holding anything back. I'm telling everything to you. I'm revealing it. I'm showing it all to you. There was a time when God's will was hidden. We didn't know who the Messiah was, when he was gonna come. It was hidden. We didn't know how it was gonna work. Was it just gonna be for Israel? Was it gonna be for the whole world? They didn't know, but Jesus shows up and he clears all of that up and he reveals it all to them. That's what he's saying. It's a sacrificial love, right? It's a um, brotherly love, but look also, it's a particular love. Verse number 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. When Jesus tells his disciples, when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Here's what Jesus means by that. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose the disciples. That's what that means. Jesus says there, when he says that, here's what he means. You didn't choose me, I chose you. That's exactly what this means. In fact, it's, I elected you, I chose you. Peter and James weren't fishing and said like, hey, what's going on over there? Let's put our nets down and go over. Hey, it's Jesus. Jesus, can we follow you? Like, that's not how it worked. Jesus showed up and said, put down your nets, come follow me and I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Matthew wasn't at his tax collecting booth and see Jesus sashaying by and go, you know what? That dude looks like he's got something going on. I'm gonna follow him. That's not how it happened. Jesus showed up, put his hand on Matthew's table. Matthew, come, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's the same pattern all throughout the Bible. Abraham didn't go, hey God, you know, make me somebody great and make promises to me and make me the, the father of a nation. No, God chose Abraham. He called him. He showed up and said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a, a, 
you know, a father of many nations. Okay, that's a great idea. I'll follow you. Same thing Israel didn't say, out of, all the, out, of, out of all the plethora of gods to serve and to choose, we made the right decision and we chose to follow God, Yahweh in the Bible, the God of the Bible. No, God showed up and he chose, he elected Israel and said, you're gonna be my nation. I'm gonna reveal myself to you and you're gonna follow me and make my salvation great, but give you the sacrificial system and trust all of this to you. And in the same way, God chooses those whom he would serve. God chooses them. And listen, here's the deal. Jesus has chosen to include us into his sovereign plan, but this isn't something this isn't something that should cause anxiety. This is something that should relieve anxiety. That Jesus's love is being evidenced in God's sovereign choice, God's effectual calling, but this isn't something that should cause anxiety for them or for us. It should be something that relieves our anxieties. In fact, think about it. Remember the context. All throughout the upper room discourse, it says that it's, it's Jesus is teaching and who is he teaching? He's teaching his disciples with troubled hearts, his disciples who are anxious in spirit. And Jesus is saying this to smooth out, to soothe their anxiety. Jesus is saying this to them because he's reassuring them of his love for them that my love for you is not a love you have to earn. It's not a love that you have to try to gain. It's not, a, it's not a love that comes through your merit, but it's a love that I have for you because I love you. And the truth is, is that when you realize that we don't have to earn God's love, it frees us. We don't have to be afraid to, to lose God's love. It's a very reassuring thing. In fact, there was a, there's a couple here at our church that uh, like so many of us, they felt like they wanted to get involved in, uh, they felt called to get involved in foster care and adoption. So this couple, they went and they made, took, made the application. They took their classes. They did their home study visits. Those of you that have been through it, you know how rigorous all of that is. They did the background checks. They took the classes. They did all of the stuff that you're supposed to do. And then at the end of it, you're certified. You're a foster family. And now you get to wait, right? Those of you involved, amen. And so they waited. And they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited and phone calls would come, but the situation wouldn't work out. And then they changed their mind. And there were times like, hey, we're gonna show up and we got like 24 kids for you tonight. And then they never, not really 24, but you know what I'm saying? Then they never would show up. And it was just like, oh my gosh, right? Those of you in it, you understand that. And after almost a year of waiting, the husband said, man, I keep hearing these um, advertisements about all these kids that are out there waiting for homes. And so he gets on the website. So there's a website you can go to in KY and you get on there and you can like just see, scroll through thousands of kids who are waiting homes, waiting to be foster cared or be adopted. So he just scrolls through there and he just sees this little boy and he's like him. He sends an email to his foster, foster care worker and says, social worker and says, hey, tell me about this boy. I think we, no, he says, tell me about this boy. We want to foster him in hopes to adopt him. And they're like, hold on a minute. And so they fast forward a little bit. They get to meet this boy and all of this. And then finally they get to bring this little boy in their home. This little boy um, was like eight or nine years old and he had been through such emotional trauma and such upheaval that he was so suspect of anybody's love or anybody's affection. I mean, this mug was like a like steel, like Teflon, love would just slide off of him, you know, try to love him, try to, and it would just slide off. He's just rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. And you know what they told him time and time and time again? 
He was, you don't love me. You don't want me here. You, you. Hey, we chose you. We chose you. We do want you here. Before we ever met you, we, saw, we, we chose you. But it's a very reassuring thing of our choice is not dependent. Our love is not dependent upon your merit or your action. We chose you. Now, sadly, like they couldn't break through that Teflon yet. <laughs> Story's not been fully written yet, but yet. But nevertheless, they said that as something to reassure them. And that's the same thing Jesus is saying here to his disciples. I chose you. It's not based upon you. A love that you have to earn is a love that you can never enjoy and a love that you can, you're always afraid of losing. And that's not the type of love that Jesus has for his children. It's not the type of love that Jesus has for his disciples. He's saying, I placed my love on you. It's a love that frees us to enjoy, to enjoy with Jesus and also a love that frees us to love others. That's what we're getting after. So when we see this, it empowers us to have the same type of love for others. In fact, let's get there in the text. It's the command in the text two times to love one another. It's not something new that's been taught in the text. It's built upon what Jesus has already said in the beginning of the night in, verse thir- in chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And now in verse number 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Try not to sing it, right? Those of us that grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. Verse number 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. How are we to love others? Very simply, like Jesus has loved us. In fact, we can take what we just saw in Jesus's love and we can kind of look at it, maybe even in reverse order. It's a particular love. It's a brotherly love that we are to have to each other. It's a sacrificial love. Let's look at particular love and brotherly love together. That Jesus calls us to love one another. Certainly in a generic sense, you and I as God's people and we are called to love everyone. Just like, as I said earlier, Jesus loves everyone. God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, it is true. God loves everyone, but then there is a non-generic very descriptive, very particular kind of love that Christians enjoy because of a relationship with Jesus. And in the same way, there is a particular, non-generic, very descriptive kind of love that you and I are to show each other. Then when Jesus says we are to love one another, he's not talking about all of humanity. Although, like I said, we show love to all of humanity. All of humanity is made in the image of God. Therefore, they are worthy of dignity and honor and we confer value on them. But what he's talking here is a relationship. Who do we show this relationship, this very loving, very particular brotherly relationship to? It's the one another's. It's the, his children's. That's who we are to show it to. It's to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That is who we are to show in the John 13 Chapter 13 passage, he says, in this you will know that my disciples, in that you love one another. And so he's saying that there are those on the outside of this love, on the outside of the covenant family of God who are peering in, they're looking in and they're seeing the way that you guys, you my disciples are loving one another. It's the same language here. There's those on the outside and they can see it. They can witness it. 
They can peer into this special kind of love that is experienced horizontally as you and I, as we love each other and love each other well. And this is a big deal. This is what gives evidence to our salvation. The true believers love the family of God. That when you were saved, when you were born again, when you were regenerate, Jesus pulled out a heart of stone and he placed inside of you a heart of flesh. And with that heart of flesh, you're capable now of carrying out Jesus' commands and obeying Jesus. And you're capable with new desires to love. And who do you love? You love God and you love each other. And when Jesus saved you, he called you out of the world and he called you to his family. You once were scattered abroad, scattered out in the wilderness and God called you out and he called you to something. He called you from something, from sin, from the world, from yourself. He saved you from that and he saved you to something, to himself and to his family, to his church. You have been vitally connected to Jesus's church. When you become saved, you receive a family. Just like when you were born, you received a family and you didn't get to pick that family. Guess what? When you were born again, you were saved, you were brought into a family and you don't get to pick that family either. Jesus picks who's saved and who's not saved and you're connected to them. Now, let me ask you a few questions. Just the sort of diagnostic type questions, okay? Let me ask you, do you love God's people? Do you with real affections, with real feelings, do you love God's people? Do you, like, do you like being with God's people? Do you like being here with God's people? Singing with God's people? Hearing God's word being preached with God's people? Do you enjoy gathering with God's people? Do you, do you enjoy the... Do you see yourself bound to them through mutual faith in Christ? Like, I'm not asking you if you're an introvert or extrovert. I'm not asking you that question. What I'm asking you is, do you love God's people? Do you genuinely with real affections, do you, do you love them? Do you see yourself connected to them? Are you concerned about God's people? That's what I'm asking you. Are you concerned about their physical needs? Are you concerned about their spiritual needs? Are you concerned about their spiritual progress? Do you rejoice with those when we rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? Do you, are you concerned about our unity? Are you concerned about our protection? Do you pray for those things? Do you look for ways to spend time with God's people? Do you like to be around them? Do you like to be in relationship with other Christians? In fact, do you prefer fellowship with God's people over fellowship with the world. Now, I'm not saying we ignore that. I'm not saying we don't live on mission with the purpose of winning the lost to Jesus and including them in this, but I'm just asking about preference. Do you prefer to be with God's people out of a genuine love and a genuine concern and a genuine, hey, I like you. Now I get it. Some of God's people are awfully weird, right? Some of God's people are, are nuts. Some of you here in this room, you're nuts. And I love you for that, but you're, you're nuts, right? But as you think about the gospel, I mean, when Jesus says he commands us to love one another, this isn't, this isn't a general generic obligation to be nice. Like, that's a good thing. 
I'm all for that. The a very generic general obligation to be nice, to be hospitable, to be kind, to say good morning. Hey, how are you? Hey, it's nice to meet you. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Hi, my name is fill in the blank. What's your name? I didn't think we've gotten a chance to meet. Hey, have you gotten connected to a community group? Like that's just being nice. And that's a good thing, but pagans can do that, right? Pagans can show that much concern and interest in others. This isn't just some kind of general obligation to niceness. This is a, this is a gospel obligation to love like Christ has loved us. And when you think about how Christ has loved us, think about again what Paul says there in Romans, the fifth chapter, where Paul talks about us being outside. We're ungodly, even when we're ungodly, even when we're sinners, even when we were unrighteous, even when we were all of these things. Like who's nuts in that picture? Who's the crazy one in that picture? Well, maybe Jesus for loving us like that, we could say, but no, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm like, that's, that's Jesus. I mean, that's us. We're the ones who are far off. We're the ones who are messed up. We're the ones who are in need of something and Jesus has it and Jesus richly pours it out on us. That's what I'm talking about when I say it's a gospel obligation. It's a gospel obligation to love like Jesus has loved. And when we say, talk about love, sometimes we just look at love and we would, we would define love as, as being the opposite of love is hate. And you would say, hey, you know what? I don't hate these people. That's a good thing. But listen, the opposite of love isn't hate. Thank you, Dr. Tim Keller. The opposite of love is indifference. That's the opposite of love. It's indifference. It's not hate and it's not anger and it's not animosity. It's indifference and apathy. And some of you, that's, I think, maybe possibly, maybe your feelings towards, towards Jesus's people. And what Jesus is saying is, if, here's my command irrespective of how you feel about it, irrespective of whether you categorize yourself as, well, I'm just an introvert. I'm just a, I'm just a wallflower. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a, well, listen, that's why we do community groups that are really, really small. And so you have opportunity to get to know one another. In fact, all throughout the Bible, it's littered with this idea of one another's. And again, it's talking about and describing the way that we are to interact with one another. It's how we, you and I, are to, are to live with one another and how we're to be in community with one another. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 51, 51, one another's, 51 things that we are to, to experience together as one another's. And let me read the 51 to you with their, so get out pen and paper. No, I won't read all 51. Let me just give you a picture. How are we to be as the children of God? Well, we're to do this. We're to serve one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to show honor to one another. We're to live in harmony with one another. We're to instruct one another. We're to greet one another. In fact, Paul says this, greet each other with a holy kiss. I'm glad there are parts of the Bible that are descriptive rather than prescriptive, amen? So we, we, we could settle here, we can greet each other and we'll just greet each other with a holy handshake. All the saints said amen, right? But Paul says, greet one another and greet them with a holy kiss. We're to care for one another. We're to comfort one another. We're to agree with one another. We're to bear the burdens of one another. We're to be kind to one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to sing to one another. We're to submit to one another. We're to speak the truth to one another. We're to bear with one another. It means put up with one another. Thank you for including that, Lord. We're to admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, do good to one another, stir up one another, meet with one another, and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. 
This is the very reason why we do PCGs. It's to create an incubator for this kind of love. It's a place to cultivate genuine brotherly love. It's a place where we can assess needs and then move to meet those needs. It's a place where we can put the love of Christ on display. It's a place where we can invite unbelievers to come and to see and to experience us loving each other and loving each other well. That's why we do what we do here. So we can fulfill all of this. The opposite of love is not hate, but is indifference. And Jesus was anything but indifferent toward us. Even this very night, he gave a living picture of his love for his disciples, the sacrifice that he would do for them. We say, and we say this in our home, we're trying to teach our, uh, all of our children and ourselves that, that food is fuel. We say that food is fuel. It fuels us to, to live and to have energy. And so we need to eat good, healthy food so we can have healthy energy so we can go up big and strong. That's what we say all the time, right? Not just growing out. We want to grow up and grow big and strong. And so we say food is fuel. And in the same way, Jesus gives us food, his body, and his blood. And it is fuel. It's fuel for his mission that we may go and we may bear fruit. He's chosen us. He's elect us for a purpose and for a reason. Not just to taste salvation, but to go and to be proclaimers of this great salvation and to love one another. And as we come to a time at this table, may Jesus's love, may it transform us. May it transform us to be his people, fully obedient in all of our ways and a people of his love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your great love and your great grace that you've shown to us. Even on this night, as you said hard things to your disciples and by proxy, you say hard things to us even today as we listen and we hear. May we see you both as our, trans, as, as our example and our means. That you exemplify the kind of love that you call from us, sacrificial and brotherly love that you call from us. And then also you are the means to that, that it is your spirit working in us that as we abide in you, what, one of the things that gives evidence to us abiding in you and abiding in your love and abiding in your word is that we will genuinely love other people, especially our church family. So Jesus, continue to give life to us. And if we find ourselves in a place of indifference and a place of apathy towards your people, and I pray that we would do the right work, the introspection to say, am I genuinely abiding in you here? Like I feel dried up and I feel withered in the area of love toward others and impatient toward my love toward others. Maybe possibly, just possibly, I'm not abiding well. And may we return to you. May we find in you all life flowing from you. For your great fame, we pray this, Jesus. Jesus, accomplish what you've commanded in us. May we be reminded today of your love. In your great name we pray. Amen.